Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Rose. We're into the prodigal son again. Friday night, um, a few Fitzers went to Dublin to do our U2 evening, and before we went on, I met Andy backstage. And Andy was uh, chatting to me about his life. Andy came to faith in a brethren hall when he was a child. When he was 11 years of age, he was out with his father on a Friday afternoon, 17th of May, 1974. And on Talbot Street in Dublin, delivering at the end of a Friday some things to shops and different things with his father. And there was a mighty explosion to which his father jumped out of the van and Andy jumped out of the van to follow his father, he said. Because he was frightened. And when you're 11 and you're frightened, you follow your father. He told me the scenes around him. He told me them very graphically. And this was 1974, so they still linger. And he said on one side of the street there was a woman whose legs had been blown off and his father went immediately to try and help her and he followed his father as you do when you're 11. His father said get back into the van and he said he was halfway across to the van and he could see the van and he could see his father and he said I knew I needed my father to get me out of there. I needed my father to help me at that point. I needed him to get me out of there. But his father was with somebody who he realized much later in his life needed him at that point more than he did. But he said he was standing in the middle of the street. The van's there, the woman's there, and the second explosion went up. And then there was a third one. And then he said to me, and on Monday I was back in school. Nobody had even mentioned it to me. So an 11-year-old boy in the middle of Dublin, not expecting what he'd experienced, had to try and deal with the graphic images that he was sharing with me 40 years later on his own. So Andy told me that he became an addict of heroin and crack cocaine and every other drug there could be to try and deaden all of this. In 2011, he got the opportunity somehow to go to Cleveland, Ohio, to go into drug rehabilitation. It was going to be six months where he would see nobody that he knew. He would go in here and in six months they would try to clean Andy up. He said he arrived in Cleveland. It was January. He said it was freezing. The snow was in the ground and all he had on him was a summer suit that he bought in a charity shop in Dublin before they flew out. But he was picked up by this guy who he called Daclan, which was kind of interesting that there'd be a Daclan in Cleveland picking an Irish Andy up. But anyway, Daclan said to him, now you're going into this for six months, but tomorrow they're giving me the right to take you around Cleveland. They don't usually do this, he said, but for some reason they're saying you can take Andy around Cleveland so that he knows because he's going to be six months in this place and he's not going to know where he is. So you can take him around Cleveland for the day. And Andy said, well, you know, I don't really need to go. I'm happy to get in here and get this started. But the next day, Declan took him round Cleveland, took him to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He said Jimi Hendrix's guitar was there and some David Bowie suit was over there. This is the Hall of Fame, Rock and Roll Centre of the World is in Cleveland. And they went up escalators and down escalators and he said it was quite interesting. And he said as they were leaving and they were going out the door, he'd missed it. Right in the centre of the Hall of Fame was a U2 exhibition because 
they were on tour at the time. And he said to Declan, you don't mind if I go up and just check this out before we go? And Declan says, go ahead. So he said to me, the Edges guitar was there. And then he said to me, Bojo's boxers. And I'm not sure whether he actually literally calls Bono Bojo or not. But he said Bojo's boxers and all this other stuff were there. And then he said there was a glass case. And I walked across, he said, to the glass case. And I looked into the glass case. And in the glass case, there was an A4 sheet, very worn, crumpled. And on that A4 sheet, crumpled as I looked in, were the words, if you twist and turn away. And I realized I was looking into this glass case to the song that you two had written about drug addiction in Dublin that was about me. This song was written about me. And he said, Declan, this song's written about me. And Declan says, aye, Irish Paddy, come on, we've got to get you into this drug rehabilitation thing. And he says to me, Steve, you know and I know how unbelievable that is. That moment, he said, when I looked into that glass case, God put his arms around the prodigal son. Because it was in that moment looking into that case that I went, God, I came to you as a child. I became a a cocaine addict. I am at the very bottom. I've wandered as far as I can go. And in that case, you brought me home. Six months later, he gets out of his six months clean. Gets a phone call from Bojo's PA. You two are playing in Pittsburgh. Would they come and hear the gig? He went to hear the gig. Gets there with Declan. Bono phones him and says, come backstage for a wee word before it. He takes Declan back. You see what's happening, Declan? The Irish Paddy's not wrong. This was written about him. If you want to look it up on YouTube, if you're a YouTube fan, Pittsburgh, bad, 2011, this is for Andy Rowan. So I'm listening to this story on Friday night, and Andy's telling me his prodigal son's story. And I've been immersing myself in this passage that Rose had read all week. And I'm going, this is the story of the prodigal son. He kept saying to me, I became a Christian as a child, Steve. I wandered so far, but God never left me. And in that moment, he brought me home. He's been clean for four years. He says, of a wee ministry, we go into addicts every day and try to tell them about grace. Grace, he said. Grace, he said, Steve. Took me 40 years to get grace. Oh, I grew up in church, but it was so legalistic and it was so, I had to do this and I had to do that. But it's just grace, Steve. All you can do is accept it, Steve. The prodigal son. Act one of the prodigal son, anyway. What we're doing in this little series, we're looking at this chapter, this prodigal son story, in the context of the chapter of Luke chapter 15. We looked at the two stories that preceded it a couple of weeks ago, and the next time we'll look at how it goes into the whole biblical story. But act one of the prodigal son is Andy's story. Andy's story. Here's a story of a son who wandered. Now let's get it into the context here. Remember what we said two weeks ago. 
The chapter starts with these words. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So this prodigal son story, as was the lost sheep and the lost coin story, are in response to this question of the Pharisees. Why is it that he he hangs around with sinners and tax collectors? Why does he do this? Jesus is answering why he does it. We've got two stories here, haven't we? The first story is the younger son who's lost big time and we can see that. But there's another son. He comes in in act two and we'll get to him in a moment or two. And he's lost as well. The younger son is found at the end of the story. Is the elder son? This story's got so many intakes of breath, it's really hard to come to terms with. If you were a first century listener, Middle Eastern listener, you would be really taken aback by the first thing. Father, can you give me my portion of your inheritance? What? It's the same as saying, Dad, I really wish you were dead. And I had that bit that's coming to me. So can you pretend you're dead for a minute, sell that bit and give it to me? I wish you were dead, Dad. I wish I had the inheritance. I need that inheritance. I want that inheritance because I want to do what I like with it. And I want to do it now. The disrespect shown to a father in this story causes an intake of breath. And then, then, the father does it. The Pharisees, do you what? Instead of throwing the son out, he gives him a... Now, prodigal means reckless spending. And there's a prodigal father right here in this story, because this is, in his culture, reckless. They were saying, what sort of a father is he? His son wishes he's dead, wants in hands, and he goes and he sells it, and he cuts his farmland and shows the neighbors that I have got less than I used to have and he gives it to his son who he probably knows what he's going to do with it this is unbelievable and it doesn't end there because the son goes and does what we expect but like Andy does all these crazy things and then when he comes back instead of giving him a good hammering that he deserves he welcomes him back when he's a long way off he runs a father runs, holds up his robe, runs towards him, throws his arms around him and kisses him in public and welcomes him back into the family. You know what that means? Oh yes, if he'd done what the son was going to say but the son didn't get the chance to say, I'll come back and be a hired hand. That was one thing. But he's going to welcome him back into the family. Do you know what that means? He's getting the inheritance again. He's wasted it. He's coming back and he's going to get a third of it when the father does. This is just unbelievable and of course it is the reckless abandon of the love of God a prodigal God it's insane it's irrational it's utter injustice as we're going to come and see for the elder son or in any culture it's unjust 
And yet this is the story Jesus expresses the love that God has for us in. While you're still a far, a long way off, God runs towards us. God keeps. Andy said he told Bono the story backstage in Pittsburgh and Bono says, they still have that lyric? Where did they get that lyric? Because Andy felt that God, while he was a long way off, was preparing all of that to show him that he was loved unconditionally. But we're only at Act 1. Act 2 is, I think, where this whole parable revolves around. Now, we don't do that. And I, I wondered why we don't do that. As I've thought about this, I have never really preached in the Elder Son before. Because what we do is we take it out of the context of Luke chapter 15. We take it out of the context of what happens in the first verse. And we think this is a really great wee gospel preachy story. Because this tells us about the love of God. And we really just about end with the wonderful news. The, the sun's back. Everybody's happy. And we're thinking that the way that ended in the day was people are listening to this story saying, Jesus, that's lovely. In fact, there's tears in my eyes. Because to think that that son was lost and now he's found... What a sentimental little story that is. That's a lovely story of God's love for us. And we stop there and we miss the point of the story. It's not really about the younger one. Because the first verse wasn't about the tax collectors and sinners. It was about the Pharisees asking the question why he hangs out with younger kind of brothers. And when we go into Act 2, we realize that what Jesus is basically doing, if we were there, that this is almost performance art where Jesus is telling this story and he comes to this bit where the father runs down the road and puts his arms around the son and then he goes into what's happening in the listener at that point. Because the Pharisees and the religious people are going, what is he doing? He's killed the father and calf. He's thrown a party for this younger son who was lost. But I've been here all along. I've been keeping the commandments. I've been on the farm working really hard. And he hasn't thrown a party for me once. What Jesus does in this second half is tell us exactly what the religious people are thinking of him going out seeking the lost, the younger son. Three wee quick things about the younger or the older son. Three wee quick things about the older son. He thinks his moral standing, he thinks his good behavior is going to give him rights. He's telling his father what to do. He's telling his father not to welcome back the other son. He's wanting to boss the father. He's not wanting to be under the fatherhood of his father. He wants to become Lord of his life. I have been so good. I've gone to Bible class and I've gone to Sunday school and I go to church twice a week and I live a very upright life and that is just, it's insane, it's irrational, it's unjust and my father has to listen to me here. We shouldn't be about these tax collectors and sinners. He's seeking to be his own saviour. He thinks that because of his behavior, he has his place. And he's telling his father what to do. I've read a lot of Tim Timothy Keller on this one because he has a wonderful book about the prodigal son. 
And, um, and he suggests that these two things, free searching, I want to have my money, so as I'll go and find myself in the world, I'm going to go out there and see what it's all like. We think that we can find ourselves in the world like the younger son. But then there's this other side of it where we think we can get to God and we can find our place in the world by being good and better than others or at least as best as we can be. St. Paul in Philippians chapter 3 comes to mind, does it not? Both of them have taken the fruit in Eden. Where Adam and Eve reached to become more than they were and became less than they were, the first son says, I'm going to take the fruit because I can know more than God and I can go and explore and find myself. And the younger son says, well, I know better than God. I'm going to be just so good that I'll almost save myself. And let's come to the, where the rubber hits the road in this story. Timothy Keller said when he moved to New York, he started talking to people in the middle of New York and he found different kinds of people. Those who were going to church, those who never went to church, those who thought a lot about Jesus, those who didn't think a lot about Jesus. And then he said, I met so many younger brothers who had been hurt and offended by elder brothers that neither I nor them were sure that they believed in the Christian faith anymore. He goes on to say, if our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers, they must be more full of elder brothers than we would like to think. If our churches aren't appealing to the younger brothers, they must be more full of elder brothers than we would like to think. This has been a challenging parable for me. It used to be a parable I used to preach to others. And this week I had to point it back into myself and say, where is the elder brother? Do I think I have rights because I wear a clerical collar? Because I've been on the journey of faith for all these years? And am I telling God what to do in Fitzroy? Am I telling God what to do in Belfast? Am I telling God, you can't do that. You've got to do it this way because that doesn't seem right at all. Am I an elder brother that has caused younger brothers not to return? Two weeks ago, I talked about the lost Protestant generation between Donegal Pass and the Royal Victoria on the in the village. I talked about the 20-somethings, 30-somethings who no longer come. I would say most of them are younger brothers who have just come to churches and met so many elder brothers that they have been so hurt and damaged that they don't come. I actually read a book recently about why ministers don't... Well, maybe some of you could get excited, but most of you, I hope, don't get worried about why ministers give up ministry. And one of them was an interesting one. One of the reasons that ministers, and there's a lot of it happening, give up ministry, is that because their congregations don't let them reach the lost the way they would want. It's interesting. Because it's easy to become an elder brother. I can become this. For we want church on a Sunday to be for us. It needs to be for me. I need to get out of it. I don't want 
us to do things that might attract a younger brother because it's for me. You see, the older brother, the farm wasn't about his father. The farm was about him. He wanted the farm as much as his younger brother wanted his piece of the farm. He wanted the farm to be for him. And if this younger brother comes back and he's welcomed into the family, he gets a bit of the inheritance. And this farm is for me. And I want this farm to give me what I want from this farm. It's very easy in our traditions to come to church for what we want rather than what the younger brother needs. And it can't be lost on us, can it? That one son went and gave his life up for the lost and the wandering. Where the elder son stayed in the farm and didn't give another thought to the younger son showed him no compassion or no desire to have him back. Jesus is answering verse 1. The Pharisees have asked a question. Why does he eat with these people? Why does he go after the lost? Why is he so interested in the younger brother and not me? Not us that are so religious. It starts with the question of the religious. And how does it end? It tells us the father goes out to the lost elder brother and pleads with him to come in. Because the elder brother is as lost as the younger one. And the father goes to him as he did to the younger one. And so the tax collectors and sinners who are making movements towards Jesus the way the younger brother does in this story, and Jesus is welcoming them in with open arms, and he's saying to the Pharisees and the religious, can I plead with you to come in too? Can I plead with you because you're lost as well in all your self-righteousness? Can I plead with you to be found like your younger brother was found? Can I plead with you to be found like the tax collector and the sinner is found? Can I plead with you to come in, he says to the Pharisees and the religious? And the story ends. The story ends with a question to the older brothers. Are you willing to be swept off your feet by the love of God and be enveloped in the grace of God because as we learned the last time, what is repentance? Repentance equals acceptance of being found. Andy, accept it being found. The lost brother, accept it being found. The religious leaders, me, Let's pray. Lord, the parables, as Jonathan has started to lead us into, and as we've been thinking about in the lost coin and the lost sheep, and now these two lost sons, parables. We have a chance to get into those parables and be part of those parables and ask ourselves where we are in them. And there's maybe those this morning that are wandering. Maybe wandering to the point where you think you've wandered so far that 
you really couldn't or God wouldn't, but he's running towards you, ready to put his arms around you and kiss your soul with the grace of heaven. Will you accept being found wherever you are? Maybe a long way off. He sees you. There's maybe some of us who are elder brothers. We're happy where we are and we want to keep it this way and we're not really that concerned about the lost brother because it might upset how we do things. It might upset who we are or our position or what we would have to come to terms with. And God seeks us as well. Comes out to us and says, come on in. Celebrate. Your younger brother was dead and now he's alive. Lord, this morning, whoever we are on that spectrum, wherever we are on that spectrum, help us to see that all we have is to know that we're loved as we are. And that when we're loved as we are, you will give us a compassion to love others as they are. And that will not only change us, but all those that we bump into. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.